You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Well, this morning um, we had what looked like it was going to be the close of the letter 1 Timothy, that rousing doxology, and Paul came in with this great amen, and you think, well, that's, that's 1 Timothy over. But then he has this final paragraph at the end, addressed to those who are rich in the present age, and then this, again, final charge right at the end. So we're going to just look at this short uh, text tonight. And so he, uh, he makes this final command for uh, the rich. And, and he's really returning to a thought he'd had earlier. Remember earlier on, he's talking about um, the, the false teachers. Uh, those were those who imagined that godliness was as a means of gain. The gospel had gone out, lots of people had been converted. And uh, false teachers were coming into the church thinking, well, here's a means of uh, make, making some money. Uh, out, out of the believers. And we see that around the world, don't we? Where there's great numbers of people converted and uh, people, new believers who are gullible and untaught. And they're very um, vulnerable to false teachers coming in and preying on them and fleecing the flock, really. That, that happens around the world. That's why we need to be investing in, in Bible teaching and Bible training. Not that you just have people converted to Christ, but that people can be established in the faith and protected from all kinds of erroneous and false teaching. So we see what, what happened there in, in Asia is just something that, that happens around the world. It's the necessity of solid teaching to protect uh, the flock of Christ. But that's so there was this situation in Ephesus. You've got these false teachers. They uh, love money. They think godliness is a means to gain. And Paul has been saying, no, no, actually, um, uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. So he's been dealing with there with partly with that and partly with um, those in the church who are tempted towards uh, envy. There's, um, there's this contrast earlier on between the, the contented poor and the covetous poor. So he's, he's addressing the many in Ephesus who didn't have wealth at that point um, and, and urging contentment on them that if they've got bread and shelter that they ought to be uh, content and trust in the Lord. Um, and then he talks about uh, those that the, the covetous poor, those who desire to be rich, this is back in verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare to many senseless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Uh, it's through this craving some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They've impaled themselves. And he's speaking there. Um, of those really without wealth who have this great inordinate desire for wealth. Um, although the, the love of money is something which afflicts not just the poor but the rich as well. But there he's been addressing those without wealth. And at the end he turns his attention uh, to, to the rich. Ephesus was the centre of commerce and trade. It was a, a wealthy city. Um, and in the congregation there were, those scattered house churches, there would not only be those who were poor, but those with considerable means. Those in these, these great houses, and they were wealthy, and they had all sorts of resources at their command. And they were, they'd been converted, they're in the church, and he is now um, giving instruction to those who were wealthy. And, um, and how it, it breaks down this first paragraph, he, he says that um, 
There are temptations, there are these two temptations to avoid for those with wealth, and then there are opportunities to pursue. So it's a bit like that, what we had this morning, things to flee and things to pursue. And verse 17, just look how he starts it. Um, as for the rich in this present age, you notice that? As for the rich, he just drops that in, in this present age. And it just reminds us um, of what he's been talking about, that we, we live in the presence of uh, God. All we do is in the sight of God, that this life is not all there is. We don't live in the, the materialist universe, uh, materialist in the sense of this world being all there is and there's nothing beyond it. Uh, actually, we are created by God. He is our creator. We live in this present age and yet we look forward to the return of Christ in glory and the life of the world to come. So he just sets uh, people's wealth in this vast context of eternal life and all that is to come. I suppose um, if a, a Marxist was listening into this, they'd think, well, this is just uh, um, Paul talking about pie in the sky when you die by and by. Um, this is you know, what Marx called the uh, religion, the opium of the people. It's just um, trying to you have, have people who are poor and, and Paul is uh, urging contentment on them and just holding out this illusory future. Says it's okay, it'll be all right in the world to come. Um, but the age to come that we trust in and believe in has already arrived in Jesus Christ, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if, if you're listening into this and you think, well, this all just sounds very fanciful, it's rooted in uh, the historic um, entry of Christ Jesus into the world, into his death and into his resurrection. And that's the place really to, to investigate and consider the identity of Jesus Christ. Why do we uh, believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come? Because Jesus Christ rose again in the middle of history. So that, but he talks that as for the rich, in this present age, there is an age to come, which um, God will bring in his good time. So he starts like that, really putting this in perspective. And so that's a good reminder for us right up the front that this life isn't all there is, there is this age to come. Um, and so um, he commands there the, these two common temptations for those who have wealth, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, uh, to be proud, that is, um, sort of looking down on other people, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So the first temptation to avoid, uh, if you've got means and wealth, or if you come into to means and wealth, and, and we are um, in a wealthy, comparatively extremely wealthy nation, um, uh, the first temptation to avoid is pride, looking down on other people, thinking that because we have more, that therefore we are more than other people. It's a, a great temptation. And that is um, a temptation we've, we've seen that talked about throughout the Bible. So Moses addresses this in um, Deuteronomy 8. So he's preaching to the, the people of God. They're about to enter into the land of promise, which you'll remember was a, a rich land, a good land. A land, Moses says, in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. 
and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. So it's a rich land. And he says, verse 11, Deuteronomy 8, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commands and rules and statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, see God's blessing them, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. That was um, the temptation, that their hearts be lifted up. Verse 17, he says again, um, Moses says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. So it's that the temptation is pride. I mean, you might also remember Kim Nebuchadnezzar, a classic example of this. Uh, at the end of this is uh, Daniel chapter 4, uh, verse 28. Um, at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said to himself, is this... Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. He was, he was lifted up in pride and thought uh, his, his wealth was all to do with his greatness and God humbled him. So this, this first temptation is that of being lifted up in pride. I think the, the, attitude, the, sorry, the antidote to that, um, we've seen it in the Deuteronomy thing, the antidote is... Gratitude is thanking God for the silver and for the gold, for the multiplication of actually remembering when things come into life that actually this is just an enormous blessing from God. What a blessing. It's that's, so instead of pride, a sort of a, a childlike thankfulness for, for many blessings, whether that's our work or different kinds of provision that God brings into our lives. So that we go. There's the, the first temptation there is pride. The second temptation is setting our hope um, on the uncertainty of riches. That's what he charges them. Don't be haughty and don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Paul just draws attention to the fact that our riches are uncertain and it's foolish to set our hopes on them and, and seek our stability and our security in our wealth. Proverbs 18.11 says this, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Okay, we imagine our, our wealth to be a fortress for the future. Somehow if we've got a, a pile of money and everything sorted out, that that somehow is security in the future. But Paul's saying, look, this is uncertain. I suppose most of us, well, all of us have pretty much grown up used to a stable civil order which has a respected property rights and, and so forth and where it's, it's been possible to, to store up wealth and sort of pass on property or something and wealth to children even grandchildren but that that really is the exception rather than the norm throughout human history for most Christians for the most part of human history life has been nasty brutish and short and that was the experience of the early church their goods could be confiscated very easily by the state. So Paul draws attention to just to the uncertainty of riches. 
Our wealth, it seems like a high tax, it seems solid, but that really is illusory. So the, the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his, um, I think it's in the Gulag Ar Archipelago, not the quote somewhere else, but he, he wrote of the, the Russian labor camps and just how on, on their arrest, just the, the state would come, they would just take all their property. And he, he said this, he says, do not pursue what is illusory, property and position, all that is gained at the expense of your nerves decade after decade, and it's confiscated in one fell night. And that happens, doesn't it, around the world? And it, it somehow is, is chilling to see um, the state of the Western world and how these, you have these extraordinary large financial fines for some of the COVID measures, like a £10,000 fine which gets landed on someone for having a, a, a party that they shouldn't have, which is rather ironic at this point. I wonder if they're going to repay some of it. But, but the state comes in, in no trial, no jury, £10,000, and that would just clear out most people, wouldn't it? It's extraordinary. Then we live in a society where suddenly the state is, is arrogated power to itself and is doing these sorts of things. Or even something, the situation in Australia or Canada, these vast sums of money which just get stripped off people. And it's not difficult to see, looking forwards, how the Church of Christ can be in a, could be in a situation where uh, you have bad laws and a mischief framed by statute and those used as mechanisms really to uh, harry and persecute Christians. And financially, things then suddenly become very uncertain. So we've been very used to the sort of Western security of a kind of Christian framework to the society. And that's, that's rapidly changing. Um, and so we're not to trust in these things, uh, with to seek God's blessing, not to trust in them. Uh, but do what? What should we do? Instead, don't set your hope of the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who does what? What does God do? Gives, gives people a bare minimum to get by. Um, on God, who gives us just enough that we can keep our chins above water. No, trust, set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's wonderful, isn't it? The great abundance of our Heavenly Father. We see it in creation, just the great abundance of creation. You put, put, put a grain in the ground, and what comes up? A grain? Two grains? 30, 60. You, just the abundance of God's creation. Um, as we see those descriptions from Deuteronomy, there's this sense of just God's blessing and abundance and um, things being multiplied. And that is our, our God, his, his kindness, and he can just bring such blessing. And he's kind of built blessing into our world. Of course, that's not the whole story. Our world is, is fallen, and um, there's not just gardens, there are deserts, and we sort of have to read the whole, whole story. Um, but it's a lovely phrase, isn't it? He richly provides us with everything to enjoy, uh, we are to enjoy the things we've been given, knowing that they've been provided by a loving, heavenly Father. And there's a great sweetness, isn't there? Um, I don't know if you've, if you've ever sort of been in financial need and then received help, which has been timely and fitting, or, or other kinds of uh, assistance and help. And you know that that's come in the answer to prayer and from the hand of the Lord. And there's just sweetness in that. I, I, my first car was a, 
a Nissan Micra, and it was a gift. I was at Theological College, I had no Micra. Someone gave it to me, and, I just, and whenever I drove around in my beaten up white Nissan Micra, I just was smiling with the, just the, the provision of a loving Heavenly Father uh, for me, even though it was not uh, the greatest of, well, it was a perfectly serviceable car. Um, so, um, setting our hopes on God who richly provides. I mean, the, the danger is like, really idolatry, making uh, something which is a good thing, wealth and money, making that an ultimate thing and setting our hope in that. Because if that's the ultimate source of our security, well, how much is enough? Not just one dollar more, just a, a bit more is enough. And it's never enough and it's very uncertain. So, so really that's just a question for us as God teaches wisdom in our hearts is where have we put our security? We feel this tug, don't we? And we need wisdom to know, you know what's prudent, what's wise. Uh, but it's terribly easy to look to the future and, and think, oh, well, that's okay, I've got that covered because of finance and wealth and all these sorts of things. And, and God does bless us in all sorts of ways, but ultimately our security is in the Lord and his provision. And he is the one who leads us step by step. Um, so those are the sort of the, the temptations uh, for us to uh, uh, avoid. And, and I think just on the, sorry, on the, the spot there, um, on, on the, this, this thing about God providing richly for everything to enjoy, that one of the things Paul is doing there, one of the problems, if you remember, in Ephesus early was, was a sort of a, a false asceticism. These false teachers were denying the goodness of God's creation, forbidding people to get married, and uh, and being sort of super spiritual. They were just had a downer on the basic good things of this creation, of, of this life. And many religious systems are, are like that, aren't they? They sort of, you end up eating miserable food and just like feeling guilty if you've got stuff and all that. There's a sort of a false asceticism which can come in to, uh, into the church. And so Paul is, is attacking that and actually saying, no, we, we need to, actually God is a good creator. He's given us these blessings. We can, can enjoy them. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that is going on there. So temptations to avoid, but also opportunities for us to lay hold of. That rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works. That's a good instruction, isn't it? The rich are to be rich in good works. It's, uh, you see, he's lovely in the way he uses his, his language, isn't he? Uh, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And you see, again, he's, he's opening up this vast vista of the future, of eternity, of life in the presence of the living God. Um, and that, that it's not that this life is all there is. Um, so he, he's doing that. We're, um, and so it's... Um, as you think about Paul and his, his understanding of the gospel and the future, it's in the life to come where we will truly experience the fullness of life. We live now in, in shadowlands, really. We have a taste of the goodness of God. We can know God through Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with one another. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. But it's in the life to come that we will taste solid joys, lasting pleasures, where we will have real possessions and, and we will inherit the world uh, to come. So he's, he's pointing to that in this little phrase, uh, taking hold of that which is truly life. Um, 
but he's talking about the way that we can use our wealth and our resources in such a way as to lay down a foundation for the future. We cannot take our, our wealth with us when uh, we go. We, we brought nothing into the world. We could take nothing out of it. But we can use our resources uh, in such a way now that that is translated into blessing in the life of the world to come. I think people, we, we sometimes get very nervous when we, we hear people talk about that rewards in the life to come or different sort of levels of, of rewards in the life of the world. But the New Testament teaches these things actually quite plainly. We're, we're saved by grace through faith. Um, but he's saying here that we can use our wealth to lay up a good foundation for the life, store up treasure uh, for life of the world to come. Now, what on earth does that mean? What does that look like? Well, Jesus said actually something similar. Um, it's the point, really, of the parable of the shrewd manager, the shrewd household manager in Luke 16. Uh, uh, it's a large household, and the manager was about to get the sack, and he'd, um, he'd gathered together his master debtors, and um, he, he got them to write down the debts, so that after he got the sack, um, he would then be welcomed into those other houses and he would get a welcome into there and he's commended for his shrewdness in uh, while he was still in the master's house living in such a way as would be uh, shrewd and wise for that future which was coming and um, so and and Jesus said on that that I've lost the quote um, yeah he, well he says use unrighteous mammon or, or wealth so that when you uh, come into the, the you'd be welcomed into eternal dwellings that's so you can look that up it's in Luke 16 um, and so how might that work what might that actually look like in practice well I hope we've perhaps seen a, a bit of an example in the establishment of, of Gloucester Presbyterian so different people have uh, financially contributed so that we can can get going here. People have supported uh, Michael and, and Laura and people have given money to me from, from other churches. What are they hoping for? Well, they're hoping to see a church established. They're hoping to see people converted, people come to Christ. They're hoping to see a work here, which uh, in God's grace will last for, for many generations and that there might be a harvest. And so that in the eternal world, they might share in that harvest with us. Uh, and so it's possible to sort of invest now. So the reward really, is if you invest in something, is um, it's not a monetary reward or anything like that. It, it's the people really. Or if you think about it in terms of if you supported financially um, a Bible translation somewhere, you know, there's great need for uh, continued translation of the Bible and you invest in that and the, the scriptures go out and, uh, and, and whole culture get, over generations can get transformed then in the eternal world, you, you'll find you, your investment up front, you got in on, on the ground floor, you put on this, this investment, has multiplied and increased, and that there are cultures and generations of people who have been brought, brought to Christ. And so do you see, it's this like, as we use our resources now, um, we need to be thinking it through how we can uh, use them in such a way to bring blessing which will last into the eternal world. So it's not, not all just about, you, know, you don't want all your investment portfolio to be in a dying world. That would be foolish. It would be wise 
to actually look to the future and to be investing in things for the future. And of course, we don't just invest financially. We invest in people, don't we, in our time and, and, and other things. We invest by raising children and all these sorts of things. <clears throat> it's been said, one of the... Um, Actually, the guy I did my master's thesis on, um, Francis Roberts, he, he had this quote I've always quite liked. He's an obscure character that uh, I don't think anyone's heard of apart from about three people. Um, but he said this. He said, a, a long life is God's seed time for eternity. A long life is God's seed time for eternity. That actually we, we're, called, we're given good works to do. Uh, here and now, um, and part of that, um, investing in different things financially, investing in people, and that is, and God uses that for, for the eternal world, and that's a, um, an encouragement and a spur. Um, and we're told in the scriptures that if we, if we sow sparingly, we will reap sparingly. Um, and we tend to find with, with finances that, that uh, as we give, then uh, God blesses us. God loves to bless those who love to bless. It's not, it's not a health and wealth um, thing, but it's just how, how God seems to work. You, know, you shovel it out and God shovels it in, but God's got a bigger shovel. You know, that, that, that's sort of how, how it works. But we, all, we need a reminder of these things because our default position of our hearts is to, to, to sort of hold on and be fearful and distrustful that God will provide into the future. That's where we, we draw to. So we just need continually the encouragement of uh, the scripture. And we need him to be teaching wisdom uh, in our hearts, um, in the depths of our being, really. But I think it's just a, it's a very um, positive view on wealth and giving, isn't it? Paul is not down on the rich here. It's not like so many uh, campaigns to raise money, which are just sort of um, guilt manipulation campaigns, the sort of the, the blood on the envelope campaign, you sort of see the, the starving child and you, you're guilted into to, to, to giving money. His approach is of, is of generosity and kindness and, um, and just, just being, being generous and investing for the future. Now the Bible does speak very strongly about those who get rich by oppression and exploitation. It's important to say that. Paul is not addressing that here. Um, but for instance, so James chapter 5, you may be familiar with these words. He speaks in these terms. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. It's a very strong uh, passage about oppression and um, that would and about people who you know they're treating the workers terribly and ripping them off and making money out of them you sort of translate translate that into the 19th century 20th century those who've 
uh, sort of rich industrialists who are grinding the faces of the poor or sending them down the mines, the sort of thing that George Orwell was talking about in the road to Wigan Pier or so, something like that. There are strong condemnations, or you think of sort of the book of Amos, you know, these woes, woes to those who add field to field and housewives till they live alone in the land. And this great oppression, that's this great theme of scripture and this condemnation of fraud or theft or uh, people who've got rich out of slave trading, and that's very topical at the moment, isn't it? Or selling arms or um, to the bad guys um, or all this sort of thing. Um, but, but as you look at, uh, look at the scriptures, if you read the scriptures, it's just, it's just a more complex picture when it, a sort of a bibli biblical theology of wealth is a more textured and complex picture than, than that which we commonly hear from a sort of, a, a, I suppose, a, a Marxist framework where if someone is rich, it is because they have necessarily oppressed the poor. And that, that sort of division, strict, simplistic division into two groups, the, the oppressed and the oppressor. So if someone has wealth, they are by definition um, morally inferior to those without wealth. And you, you sort of have things which run along those lines. So the Bible does speak very strongly against uh, every kind of oppression and evil and wickedness. Um, but we see here that there's just a, a rich, more complex picture of these things. It's important we don't reduce the biblical categories when it comes to wealth. So um, he's, Paul gives us his, his, this kind of warnings there about pride, warnings about the uncertainty of riches, but then encouragement to trust God, who is so generous and kind, and to use uh, our wealth, our resources, uh, wisely in view of uh, uh, the eternal world and, and the life of the world to come. Um, and so as a church, you know, we, we want to grow in wisdom in how we uh, use our wealth. We're wanting to be generous and supporting and praying for people in different situations. I was speaking to a friend uh, recently who actually, he started the church plant um, roughly the same time as we started here, uh, but he's in Nairobi. Uh, and their, their church is on the edge of a shanty town and they've got 60 to 90 children on a Sunday morning <laughs> coming to their house. Uh, the great needs, aren't there? Somewhere like that. Uh, and um, I think as churches grow and get established, over time, um, God provides partnerships, doesn't he? Uh, and opportunities for us to be praying and uh, giving. And just as we've received so much to get going, and we still need to receive to get going, Lord willing, we will be there for those who can also give and, and then experience just the blessing of giving and receiving. And that's how the, that's how the kingdom uh, works, isn't it? And so we come to, to a close of uh, um, this final charge, verse, where are we, verse 20. And actually, before I get there, I just had a stop. Stott has been very helpful on some of this stuff. Um, and he does us quite a good summary of this, uh, these paragraphs about money. I'll just read it. Uh, he says, looking over both uh, the paragraphs about money, the apostles' balanced wisdom becomes apparent. Against materialism, bracket, an obsession with material possessions, he sets simplicity of lifestyle. Against asceticism, bracket, the repudiation of the material order, he sets gratitude for God's creation. 
Against covetousness, bracket, the love for more possession, the lust for more possessions, he sets contentment with what we have. Against selfishness, the accumulation of goods for ourselves, he sets generosity in imitation of God. Simplicity, gratitude, contentment, and generosity constitute a healthy quadrilateral of Christian living. And there you are, healthy quadrilateral of Christian living from John Stott. And so he finally, he, he closes, Paul closes with these words. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit, that's the apostolic faith entrusted to you. Um, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith, grace be with you. So again, this idea that, that Timothy has got this, this apostolic faith that he is to, to pass on, and that Bible teaches we're not to be creative. <laughs> we are not to be sort of vir virtuoso creative performers with the word of God, but actually deliver what is actually there and make sure we stick to the text and give it neat and clean and not diluted and adulterated. It's guarding this good deposit. How do you guard the good deposit? By teaching it and by explaining it and by, 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 by and making sure it's widely known. And then for some... By professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So grace be with you. Grace be with you all. And uh, we've come to, to pray now. And just let's pray that God would uh, work these things into our hearts and lives, both uh, individually in households and as a church together. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K. For more, thank you.